interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Okay, cynicism time. This is the other side of the equation. And so I'm pulling in both directions. Pull one direction in the morning and then try and pull the other direction this afternoon. Uh, hopefully, there's a big area in the middle. Uh, let me just begin with prayer. God, I thank you for the many gifts that you've given us, uh, the abilities, the capacities, and we just pray that you'd help us to use them well. Pray that you'd help us to see yourself, your world, ourselves, and one another clearly and in a way that's pleasing to you. Help us in this, Lord, and really touch us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, I would say cynicism is an equally powerful force, maybe even more powerful. I don't know, it's impossible to compare it, more or less powerful than cynicism, than, than uh, sentimentality. But uh, I got into this as I was telling the guys who drove me last night up here. I was washing dishes at Labrie. <clears throat> this woman who's an artist from Seattle just casually asked me, um, how can you read the newspapers and watch the morning, the evening news and take the world basically seriously and not end up a cynic. And my answer to her was so lame and pathetic that uh, it's really the reason I ended up uh, doing a lot of work on cynicism, writing a book about cynicism, and because I thought it was just so poor as a response to, I think, a huge issue a huge issue that's all around us. It's not brand new. It's been around in different forms. It always morphs into different shapes um, <clears throat> in each generation, in each place, in each culture within each generation. Each age group has a different spin on cynicism, I think. Um, and I guess my first interest was an issue of apologetics, of how it keeps people from even taking the Christian faith seriously, they look, they see through God and they dismiss him. They see through Christians, they, they dismiss them. But then, the more I've been talking about it, the more I'm poking around, the more I find an awful lot of Christians discover that they are much more cynical than they would like to think that they were. And, and so it's, it's very much to do with our own attitudes as well. Uh, not just how can we better communicate to people out there, but how do we think straight ourselves and how do we really honor God by the way we think. Now, <clears throat> again, to define, as I did with, with sentimentality, to define cynicism, I'm defining it for you because of the way I'm using it. That's not everybody's def- definition, and that may not be yours, but I want you to know where I'm uh, where I'm coming from here uh, so that you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's a confidence that you can see through people, through virtuous, honest, upright, faithful appearances of people to see that what is really going on is not what appearances seem to tell you, but what's really going on is actually controlled by selfishness, greed, lust, desire for power, etc., 
They're basically in their virtues, in their moral strengths, in their uprightness, they are actually phonies, consciously or unconsciously. Not necessarily consciously, but uh, maybe, maybe unaware of their own hypocrisy. Uh, people are laden with hidden agendas. If any of you have studied much postmodern philosophy or lit crit or any of this stuff, it's dosed in cynical assumptions here. Um, we deal with this problem all the time, all of us, at, at, at uh, micro levels. Someone pays you a compliment. They really like what you did, what you wrote, what you said, the work you accomplished. And you've got, and they say, I really, really like what you did. You've got a few seconds to decide, do I take that seriously or are they putting me on? Do I take this as a straightforward, straight ahead compliment? Thank you very much. I'm so glad you went. Or do I look in suspicion? Are they trying to, are they going to mock me behind my back if I take it seriously with their friends? Uh, or are they trying to sell me something? What do they want out of me? Uh, uh, they wanting to sell me life insurance or financial services or sell me Tupperware. Uh, what is it that they're trying to get uh, in my good graces to, to, uh, to do? So I just suggest that in our normal routine, we, we make decisions, maybe not even conscious decisions, but do I take this compliment at face value or not? Do I look, does, does suspicion kick in? And I say, hmm, I've got to be careful of this remark and this person in the future. Um, and you, you effectively unmask it. Don't take it at, at face value. So we have all sorts of experiences of how to decode or deconstruct things that seem to be uh, positive to us. And to know, do we trust their honesty? Do we trust their faith? Or do we trust in faith, hope, and love at all? You see, cynicism, if it's full bore true, undercuts faith, hope, and love, the three great Christian virtues you see at the end of uh, uh, Corinthians 13. They're all bogus. You know, there's nothing you can trust in any of them if you take suspicion, uh, uh, if you take your suspicion all the way. Now, again, still working on definition. <clears throat> I see suspicion as a God-given capacity. Suspicion is not bad, intrinsically. Suspicion is absolutely necessary for us in a screwed-up world, in a broken world. We need suspicion. Without suspicion, retail advertising would all bankrupt us before Christmas. No problem. Just, you know, if you you weren't able to deconstruct advertising uh, in a big way, uh, we'd just be finished. Uh... Who wants to be naive, clueless, and broke uh, in, in all this, taken in by everybody's con artistry? So we need suspicion. The question is: <clears throat> in a world filled and packed with spin, what are the limits of our suspicion? How do we make? Li- and what I'm arguing is that cynicism is overconfident suspicion. Is suspicion virtually without limits put on it? What limits do we put on our suspicions? You see what I'm saying? Suspicion is a necessary thing. We need it. Uh, Jesus taught to be suspicious. Much of the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us how to be suspicious. Every time he says, beware of, he's teaching you to be suspicious. It's not, Jesus isn't the sentimentalist living in a lovely, you know, drifting above the world on clouds. He's living in the very, very real world where he knew what was in their hearts, therefore he did not trust himself to them. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, 
the question is, what are the limits of those of that suspicion? And that'll be the whole question here. And I, and I will not, don't get your hopes up, that I'm going to give you a nice, a nice line to draw. Here's legitimate suspicion, and here is cynicism. And uh, I wish I could. If I could, I'd be probably be a rich man now. But, but uh, uh, I can't. And, and I don't think real wisdom is found in a... In a, in a fine line there, but it's, but it's um, uh, rather in the growth of real wisdom, which is a, a deep kind of personal discernment ourselves. How does cynicism come to us? It's not a formal school of philosophy. It's not a social theory. It's not uh, a worldview itself. It sort of was a, not even a school of philosophy in pre-Socratic Greece, but it was a, a, a sort of a movement, a very loose movement in uh, pre-Socratic times. But the word is stuck with us. And, and taken different forms. Uh, it comes at us in too many ways. It can come at you as a mood that certain people with certain temperaments are more prone to than other people with other temperaments. Uh, it can come as a sort of a voice in your ear of uh, you ought to be suspicious about this person or about this thing that happened. Watch out. There's danger lurking and so suspicion kicks in. Um, it can be a strategy for survival for people who've been uh, betrayed or let down too many times or even once or twice by really important people in important ways. Uh, to other people, it's, been, it's just self-evidently the way you must be. I've had people say, growing up in Eastern Europe, uh, that the operative mood is cynicism and the only people you ever trust are people in your family because they've been lied to for decade after decade after decade by the government. And... Uh, and with all the distrust among the population that that fosters, is that if you're in the Czech Republic or whatever, uh, you're liable to be dealing with a high level of cynicism as just the way things are, the way you've got to be, the way you've got to behave. Um, or you can uh, cynicism can, can come from a, having a really a negative view of human nature. Maybe you've been reading too much Nietzsche. And, and uh, it's really gotten under your skin and you've developed a view, a world view that really, uh, where you're instructed to see through uh, all, all these appearances. Or it can come with hanging out with people with a cynical sense of humor. And nothing more substantive than that. Just the people you hang out with and what they laugh at and what you begin to find yourself laughing at. Uh, uh, was Monty Python or whatever it is. Uh, there's a lot more modern... Uh, uh, versions, but but you see what I'm saying. It doesn't take much to to get a cynicism, especially if our if our immediate social group is cynical. It's very very hard to resist it. Um, cynicism is promiscuous. It can cohabit with any worldview uh, or religion or philosophy. Uh, in its light form, it can come with low blood sugar and leave with a good cup of coffee. Uh, in its heavy form, uh, it can be a pattern of life that leads you to a life of bitterness and isolation. So we're dealing with quite a range of, of um, ways to get into it and uh, ways of seriousness in it, though. But I, I can't overemphasize that enough that it's uh, it comes in unarticulated forms. I was talking to one of you afterwards about both sentimentality and cynicism. What I'm trying to do is make articulate what in our society is very powerful as an inart- unarticulated force, an unarticulated uh, message. Both cynicism and sentimentality get away with murder in the sense of communicating an enormous amount to people without articulating much of anything. And so 
I'm, I'm trying to articulate them and sort of push both of them out of the closet, as it were, uh, into, into the open so we know what we're dealing with and can think about it more carefully. Also, I, I see cynicism in three theaters. <clears throat> and this is important to see it's the, the uh, <clears throat> uh, distinctions here. We can be cynical about other people. That may be the... You could call that classical cynicism, or it's, it's maybe the most common kind of cynicism, seeing through other people's motivations. You can also, and this is one of the more distinctively recent sides of it, you can be cynical about the institutions of society. They can lose their moral, quote, moral legitimacy, as a sociologist might say. Um, and thirdly, we can be cynical about God or ultimate truth. Now, it's very possible to be cynical about one of those or two of those and not the other. So cynicism is not just blanket. For example, Karl Marx was profoundly cynical about individual people, profoundly cynical about God, but naively optimistic about the state. Okay? His cynicism didn't extend to what the state, to the powers of the state. Uh, Rousseau... uh, Cynical about the state, pretty cynical about God, but naively optimistic about the individual, if you could protect that individual from the pressures and corruptions of society around him or her. Uh, So, very possible to have one or the other. That's why it's necessary to to not just talk about cynicism, but to see it as as functioning in these areas. Okay, I want to talk, three sections here. One, I'll be talking about the three theaters of cynicism. Then about cynicism and honesty. And then finally, a a specifically Christian response. Okay, these three theaters. I want to amplify on these three theaters of cynicism. First, cynicism about other people. Uh, Interesting biblical example. No surprise that it comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4 says, I saw all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, uh, the preacher here claims to be able to see through the appearances of hard work, diligence, training, etc., good Protestant work ethic, da-da-da-da, and see, uh uh-uh, it's motivated by ladder climbing, by status ladder climbing. That's, That's what drives the whole thing. That's what makes it work, uh, climbing the status ladder. The thing that makes it cynical is this little word, all. Uh, Anyone can see that some people, some of the time, are motivated in some of their work by, say, ladder climbing and envy. I think you'd be naive to say that nobody ever was motivated by envy or just uh, climbing status ladders by, by working hard. But the thing that really makes it a cynical statement is the totalizing side of it. All people, in all their work, all of the time, cynicism is a totalizing way of seeing and thinking. The cynic feels much more sophisticated than the rest of the herd of society. You see this term herd a lot in some cynical literature. The the mass of of humanity who who are mere cattle who don't have my astuteness and my wisdom and my sharp tools of critical analysis. Uh, But I do have these, so I can see through things other people can't see through and expose them and know what's really there. Uh, 
And what's really there is this, a, a totalizing vision. I can reduce the whole thing. I'm going to read you a Doomsbury cartoon from years and years ago, back in the years when Bill Clinton was president. So you may not be up to speak quite on the, uh, uh, of the specifics, but it won't do you much harm. The, the visual also is just the White House with balloons coming out of the top of the White House. So, uh, so how, do the, how do the numbers look this week, people? Hold, holding steady, sir. Whitewater, Paula Jones, Travelgate, none of it is sticking to you. It seems the nation's finally growing up. It turns out that character doesn't count so much anymore. It's performance. It's about results now. There's a new pragmatism out there. Hmm. I don't know. Is it pragmatism or cynicism? Oh, it's definitely not cynicism, sir. For it to be cynicism, the American public would have to believe that all politicians possess your particular character flaws. Clearly, that's not the case. Oh. Well, good. I'd hate for it to be cynicism. No way, sir. People understand that you're one of a kind. <laughs> now, uh, don't have to know too much about Clinton's presidency to know that's coming from. But it's it's a uh, you know it's the thing is that 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 makes it cynicism it would be that all politicians possess your character flaws. The thing that would make it cynic, cynical is that is the totalizing judgment, not just that you have character flaws, but that. Politicians, period, have character fl- uh, fl- flaws in this way. So uh, it, it's not cynicism, we're told. Um, so that, that's the, the, it's a generalizing, it's a totalizing or generalizing assumption. What I'm saying is, see, it's, a, it's overconfident suspicion. You've seen character flaws in one person, you generalize and you say, okay, everybody, this is everybody. This is what really motivates people. Uh, and, and of course, the human sciences are filled with academically respectable ways of describing the real motivations we have of, uh, that, that, that uh, are behind our, our, life, uh, our life drives and, and uh, desires. Um, so, the, see, the human sciences provide us all sorts of fodder uh, to use here if we are lacking any. <clears throat> Cynicism about the institutions of society. This, I, I would say, is a, is a newer spin. It's not new-new, but, it, but it, uh, I'd say it's a one of the critical factors, I have friends of sociologists who would say one of the critical distinctives of modern America and the crisis of modern America is that its political institutions have lost their moral authority. A lot of it would be seen to be post-Vietnam, and people look with cynicism at their own governments and own society's institutions. Um, Institutions of society claim to serve us, protect us, support our lives, but cynicism sees through them. It says they're corrupt, they function for the benefit of a few people who are running them, and their friends. Uh, and you can look through, just think through all the institutions that we know of. Uh, government, law, media, education, the arts, the church, marriage and family, the corporate world, medicine. Uh, all hypocritical, all in it for the money. You know, you can hear voices saying that. Uh, and you can see, and it's, it's not nothing they're pointing out. You can point to real examples of money dominating all those things, or, or a very greedy approach to money dominating all those institutions. Um, government. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just touch on the three sort of biblical institutions of the state, uh, <clears throat> marriage, and the church. Um, think of the sort of the humor even that comes out of this, or. or uh, Politics is a, is a charade run from K Street by lobbyists. If you saw the film Wag the Dog, anyone see the film Wag the Dog with Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro? 
if you want a, a good take on cynicism about uh, electoral politics and the American public, uh, have a look at the film Wag the Dog. Um, or just sort of sayings, politics is about lying. Or Washington is Hollywood for ugly people. Or... or uh, <laughs> Harry Truman's... Harry Truman's famous phrase, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Uh, interesting barometer about cynicism and the presidency is looking at how, say, Franklin Roosevelt and Jack Kennedy, by the press, they both did a huge amount of messing around sexually with women who were not their wives. The press kept it totally quiet out of respect for the office of the presidency. Not that they loved them either, because there were people on both sides politically of both FDR and JFK. Compare that to how Bill Clinton was treated uh, in, in, with his uh, uh, goings-on, uh, where the whole uh, transcript uh, of these trials was on the Internet for the world to see. Now, that's a shift. There's a real shift there in terms of where journalism is standing, in terms of the... the uh, Respect the degree to which the presidency has moral authority um, in the world. <clears throat> so that would be a good, uh, a good measure of it. Marriage and family. I'll just give you one quote, which says a lot. Listen carefully. This is a, a man who's just been divorced, and this is his strategy for the future. Listen carefully. Instead of getting married again, I'm going to find a woman I don't like and buy her a house. I'll let you stew on that for a minute. This is a, a strategy better than getting married again, is finding a woman he doesn't like and just buying her a house. This is a post-divorce strategy. The church. None of you would have to guess very far and very long to come up with grievances that can become cynicism about the church. Because uh, in a way, the church sets the highest standards. And the higher the standards you set, the better target you become for the cynic. <clears throat> the bigger the target, the more vulnerable you are as a target. Uh, so the, the church is an enormous target for cynical deconstruction. Uh, here's a statement from a cynical, depressed <clears throat> young man from a Christian home, but who's a Christian, who's a dropout from his church. I've been working with counselors. It's so funny how many people want to work with you through your pain when there's money involved. Heck, I can go down to the bar, hand out some money and drinks, and people will listen to me. I want something real. No more games. My ex-church will say they all love me. Everybody loves me, don't they? Love in our commercial and Christian America is just a word to get people's money. That's, that's a good example of cynicism about the church. This guy... Uh, you know, he sees through all sorts of respectable motivations. He sees only games about getting money. Longs for something that was real. He's 24 years old. He went on six months after writing this to shoot four people and, and, and shoot himself. Uh, education. Uh, the cynicism aimed at education from within and without. I'll just give you a couple of lines within. An ex-president of the University of Chicago says, the university is not a university, but a, but a multiversity united only by a central heating system. <laughs> Another one, head of one of the chancellor of one of the branches of the University of California, referred to his own faculty 
as a group of intellectual entrepreneurs bound together by common grievances over parking. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how he got on with his, with his faculty. <coughs> um, so, what I'm driving at is institutions can be seen, there's a voice that sees through institutions and shows their hypocrisy, corruption, uh, that they don't do what they stand for, that they're run for the benefit of those who, who run them <clears throat> and suck up a huge amount of, of our money in the process. Uh, that they don't deserve the respect that they have, that they claim. Uh, and there's plenty of rocks to throw. There's plenty of rocks to throw on all sides. Um, but if we follow this cynicism about institutions... We will become very isolated, withdrawn people. Maybe able, only able to relate to our own personal friends if we have any left uh, at that time. Because you see, to, to look cynically on every institution, you remove yourself from an awful lot of public life. And uh, uh, it, it can be a profound retreat. Okay, cynicism about God. We talked about cynicism about individuals, institutions, society, and about God. Uh, there are two angles to cynicism about God. Uh, one, a very old one, uh, that God in reality is not God as advertised. In other words, God does not walk his talk. He says he's loving and kind and powerful, but in fact, um, he's malevolent uh, or indifferent or barbaric. Uh, we're living in a God-forsaken world. Camus put it, God's only excuse is that he doesn't exist. Uh, but there's another talk. That goes all the way back to the book of Job, and it's been there as long as people have believed in a good God who is also powerful. <clears throat> um, a cynicism. Why doesn't he walk his talk? Um, but there's another cynicism which is much more, um, not new in the 19th century, but really getting its bite. Uh, in the 19th century as the, as the Enlightenment sort of goes into decay. Uh, but this is not so much, and get this distinction, this is not so much attack on God himself, it's an attack on human knowledge or human experience of God. So it deconstructs, it looks cynically through human experience of God, human knowledge of God, not of God himself. And by that I mean uh, they look at human experience of God Cynically, and say it is only not an experience of the real God, but is only a crutch for psychological weakness. It's a consolation for someone who's insecure, who doesn't, who, for whom the world is too cold to really face the world as it is, or all sorts of different ways of of uh, deconstructing faith in God uh, to explain, to answer the question: How come there's how come there is a religion even though there's no God? Uh, the, the phenomenon of religion's persistence when there's no God there is, is what this whole stream is all about. So Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, Weber, these are the big guns called the masters of suspicion uh, <clears throat> in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, God is a consolation for people who are unable to face the cold world. Uh, he's a, a, a wish fulfillment, a sort of compensation for their loneliness and disappointment. Uh, so just by believing in God, even though there's no God there, makes them feel better. That's why they believe in God and, and feel more able to cope with life. Feuerbach is big in, in the start of this. And uh, 
many other people carrying it on. The human sciences do a huge amount with this. Uh, so God is a crutch for the weak, but God is also a smokescreen uh, for believers to hide behind. He provides a, a, a shield for them to pursue their selfish ambitions under cover of very, very respectable ideals. This would be Marx, of course. His big thing is that the Christian faith provides very, very respectable ideals under which uh, capitalism can pursue outright greed and have it all look respectable. Um, some postmodern philosophy, at an extreme form, w- would say this, that all moral ideals, not just those coming from God, are, are really only deodorants, deodorants to hide the smell of our self-interest. Any ideal is only a deodorant to hide the smell of your own self-interest. So the ideals you conjure up just are, are, are kind of a smoke screens under which you pursue your, your, your real ambitions. High moral principles covering the, the power grab, covering the lust, covering the desire for admiration, covering the, the, uh, the uh, greed for money. Uh, these moral ideals blind both perpetrator and victim. This is one of the powerful messages of postmodern thought, which I think is, is some real truth to it, is they blind you as you pursue this, thinking you're really mon- driven by your own ideals, but actually driven by your greed, let's say. But also, they will blind the victim to your greed uh, if you, if you uh, get your propaganda right. Um, in all this, the, the operative word is suspicion. That's why you, you see this term, the hermeneutics of suspicion, meaning that our basic principle of inter- interpretation of what's going on is suspicion. Um, so, uh, I've talked about sentences about individuals, about institutions, about God in two senses. And I would say the second sense about God is uh, the, the, the second kind of suspicion, not so much about God as allowing evil in the world, but against knowledge of God and experience of God is, I think, in our time, for the last hundred years, been more damaging and more uh, uh, corrosive of Christian confidence uh, because it's, it's, um, it, it cuts beneath. They can show you... Uh, Nietzsche has a fascinating statement, which I could... Well, I could quote you later. But, but uh, saying... saying uh, uh, we used to think you could come up with arguments against God, but the trouble with that is they could all conceivably countered by other better arguments. But I have a better plan. I can just tell people why they believe in God, and if I can make them ashamed of the reasons they believe in God, that shoots their faith to pieces, and I don't need to even argue the question, is God there or not? I can make people ashamed of the motivations that lead them to trust in God, and then I've won the game already. And, 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 and he said, he, he looks back and says, atheists never knew how to make a clean sweep. Meaning, now I do know how to make a clean sweep, just to sweep all these theists off the map uh, by showing them the, the motivations that drive their faith. <clears throat> okay, second big heading here, what is cynicism's claim on honesty? This is important because cynicism's big credibility is that Okay, I am a cynic and being honest. You are being conned by the sentimentalists, you're being conned by the Christians, you're being conned by everybody else. Nobody is really honestly looking at the world, has the courage to look at the world as it is. Uh, And um, I do, and so uh, I think many cynics are saying, um, if you're cynical, that's the last stopping place of honesty. Uh, if, you, if honesty takes you to cynicism, you don't ever need to go beyond cynicism. Honesty will never take you beyond cynicism. Hon- honesty will keep you there in cynicism. 
Okay, now that, that's the big thing I really want to question uh, in this next section. Is cynicism really so very honest? And what I want to do here is basically to reverse the flow of, cynicism, of suspicion, uh, to take the tools of cynicism back and use them on the cynic. And, and sort of reverse cynicism, push cynicism back upstream, as it were, uh, or at least push suspicion back upstream, um, and and, um, and and think of some of its claims. Uh, first of all, as I said, cynicism looks with scorn at unsophisticated people for having naive and grandiose ideas in all three theaters that we mentioned. Ideas about human dignity and value, integrity, virtue, faith, hope, love, uh, they criticize those naive enough to believe in these things. They criticize those who believe in the value of human institutions and their, and their potential to do good. They criticize uh, the goodness of God and the meaningfulness of human life, all as naive and grandiose ideas. So, my first question is, how does the cynic know enough to be able to see through all these surfaces to what's really there underneath. Isn't cynicism itself a naive and grandiose way of thinking that it can know that, that it has an X-ray vision which is accurate enough about the inner workings of the, all human minds, the future of institutions, and the meaningfulness of the universe, that the cynic himself or herself has the intellectual equipment, the epistemological equipment to know that stuff to be as general and totalizing as it is. Uh, just because you are scornful doesn't mean you're necessarily accurate or clear-sighted. Just because you're looking down rather than looking up doesn't mean that you're right. Or as C.S. Lewis said, a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. <laughs> to take the example we started with in Ecclesiastes, how, remember, all toil and all work come from man's envy of his neighbor. Uh, how could anybody know that? How would you ever know that? How could you know that? How would you find out about all work and all toil from all people all the time? Uh, seems very sophisticated. Seems somebody who's had a lot to do with labor relations and, and industrial psychology and da, 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 all this stuff. But how would you know that? Um, I'd say no human being could possibly know that. Let's say you scaled it down radically to be talking about one other person. How could you know that all toil and all work of even one other person was motivated by envy? I would say you couldn't because that person might even tell you that was true himself or herself, and, but that might only be because they're depressed. If you talk to someone seriously depressed or been seriously depressed yourself, you know that you're incapable of seeing any positive motivations in your head in the present or the past. That you've never had a positive motivation. There's always some sleazy motivation you had for doing everything. If you've been really depressed, you have felt that very likely. Uh, lots of other depressed people have. It's not true, but just the way you feel. So what I'm suggesting is that the cynic is making a judgment. This is what I'm saying. I'm wanting to push, push cynicism out into the articulated world and, and say, what are you actually claiming? What is it really? What, what, what is actually being claimed here and how do you know it? You need to be pretty near omniscient to warrant most cynical judgments. 
pretty near omniscient, or at least know enormously more than any human being can know. Ironically, in a postmodern influenced era, it's really ironic because postmodernism's main theme is how little we can know and how unsure all our knowledge is of everything. So to have deeply cynical statements coming out of that uh, milieu is a really ironic uh, situation. Um, this is the overbite of cynicism. It, it itself trusts in naive and grandiose assumptions about how much we can actually know about other people, institutions, and God. Another whole thing I don't have time to get into uh, here is that cynicism, to, to throw rocks the way a cynic throws rocks, you need to be standing on something uh, to throw. Uh, someone in a free fall can't throw things with any accuracy or strength. Uh, if you're just free falling from an airplane, you're not going to be throwing things with any accuracy. The cynic needs to be standing on something solid to throw hard and throw accurately. The cynic doesn't want to admit where it's standing. He's, he or she is standing. But the cynicism is almost always driven by some ideal that is not admitted. Cynicism is built on ideals of freedom, authenticity, and love, and cynically deconstructs everybody who doesn't measure up to those models. For example, to criticize one of the favorite targets of cynicism is hypocrisy. It's often easy to see, and it's very ugly to uncover. And, and everyone will be on your side if, you, if you've, if you've uh, surely uncovered somebody's hypocrisy. Uh, but uncovering someone's hypocrisy and, and, and casting a negative light on it assumes that you're standing somehow in a world where you know that hypocrisy is wrong, where hypocrisy should not happen. Now, the cynic, almost all cynics, don't have any way to be standing on that value. That value makes terrific sense if you're a Christian that you shouldn't be hypocritical. Uh, but, or if you're standing on some other worldview that gives you a way of saying, hypocrisy is really wrong because... Dot, 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 whatever. Uh, but cynicism gets huge mileage out of deconstructing hypocrisy, but without ever admitting that you're assumed, they're assuming to have a place to stand, something to stand on to throw that rock. Moving on, cynicism doesn't, basically cannot uh, take its own medicine and, and uh, I think come, starts to come unglued as we, as we see it in this way. Uh, what if, for example, you see, I've, I've said the cynical deconstruction of knowledge of God, at least, <clears throat> is that uh, people believe in God because believing in God has payoffs. Psychological payoffs, social payoffs, economic payoffs, whatever. Um, and that's why people believe in God, even though there's no God there. <clears throat> Uh, what if cynicism has payoffs? What if there are less flattering reasons to be a cynic? Uh, impure motivations for adopting cynicism. Uh, motivations less pure than, than uh, unbiased commitment to the truth, let's say. Um, and it turns out, I would maintain, that cynicism can be motivated by the very things that it attributes, to which it attributes faith in God. Cynicism can be a crutch. Cynicism can also be a smokescreen. So this is using their, the, uh, the, the cynical apparatus back on cynicism. Cynicism is a crutch. One of the main motiva motivations for cynicism is to provide the consolation of self-protection. I think self-protection is one of the main things that 
that motivates cynicism. It saves you from the danger and risk of hope and then disappointment. Hope is a very risky behavior because it exposes you to disappointment, to disillusionment. Um, Cynicism takes you where you don't take risks and you justify yourself to not take risks and, and getting hope in anything. If you expect the worst of other people, institutions and God, you're not disappointed. And there's a certain comfort in that, there's a certain protection in that, certain consolation in that safety. Um, cynicism can also protect you from seeing the truth about yourself. I think a big function of cynicism, and I don't want to say this about everyone who is cynical in a, in a strong way, but it's certainly true of some, cynicism is a tremendous way to justify apathy. Because you can always, anyone who would demand your moral effort, let's say, to do something to make the world a better place, you can always criticize that person, that movement, that development, that particular action that you were meant to have done. Um, You can see through it from higher moral ground. Um, Cynicism can enable you to see only your high moral principles, but not the fact that you really uh, are what some people have called a, a potential idealist, which means that you have high ideals, you march around ideals, but you never find a cause that's worthy of your moral investment. There's nothing in the world that's quite worthy of you investing your moral energy in. Now, you see what you're saying? If you say something like that, you, you, your self-image is as an idealist, but there's nothing around that gets you off your butt and gets you actually working to get your hands dirty to make a dirty world a little bit better place. Uh, but you can maintain a very positive, high self-image in the process. Um, nothing so far worthy of your moral effort. <clears throat> uh, so cynicism can be a crutch, and I think it's a powerful crutch in these in these uh, ways. Cynicism is also a smokescreen. It can offer you a way of thinking well of yourself, that you're, abs- you're after all, more enlightened. The cynical person is, is a... Uh, in a seat that is high and lifted up in, the, in biblical categories of the scorner, the seat of the scorner, is somehow a, a seat that's high and lifted up in, in human society. Uh, someone is uh, uh, very wise or very shrewd or very sharp or very witty or something who takes uh, cynical judgments um, and, and uh, they're looked up to and can be relied on. I think that dynamic functions... Uh, of the cynic being looked up to as somehow an elite in, in a more elite position is in the know they really see what I didn't, didn't quite see myself um, it, it, I think you see it in the school playground you see it in the bar room you see it in the board room you see it in the faculty room you know, I think you see it everywhere across the board there's, in, in, the, in the social pecking orders there's a way that cynicism is, is very often lifted up and, and uh, as you do that, that is a tremendous, I think, motivation for cynicism. Uh, it, get, it gets you elitism, and yet is a smokescreen at the same time for that very elitism. Uh, <clears throat> so, as we reverse the flow of suspicion, we can see that cynicism's judgments are very vulnerable to cynicism's own criticisms. And that to really be to, to warrant a cynical judgment, you really are talking about being nearly omniscient. Uh, but that cynicism can't take its own medicine and is, is really foundering on the very criticisms it has of belief in God. Third big point here, uh, Christian response. 
How do we compare this to the Christian faith? Um, where does the Christian faith fit into this? Um, I didn't grow up as a Christian. Uh, never went to church growing up or anything like this. Uh, but when I first met the Christian faith, by the time I guess it was sort of a senior year in college uh, and the year after, um, I respected right away a brutally realistic view of human nature. None of the Christians I met asked me to sort of put on rose-colored glasses on the world uh, and, and therefore to, in order to, to think about the Christian faith. And that I respected. I was fairly cynical. Uh, but then I came across some differences. Uh, the realism of the Bible is that there is terrible evil in the world and in the human heart, but there is also dignity nobility and meaning in human life. Theologically, this is because we're made in the image of God and yet we've fallen into sin. This is going back to the thing, we are a glorious ruin or a ruined glory or whatever we want to deal with those two sides of the human condition. Uh, any Any true description that gives justice to what, to who we are and what our lives are like has got to deal with those two sides of glory and ruin. Uh, sentimentality, as I said, allows only for glory. Cynicism allows only for ruin. has no place for dignity, integrity, glory. Now, the problem with cynicism from a Christian point of view is not that it's not nice, but that it's not actually true. The sentimentalist problem with cynicism is that it's not nice. The Christian problem with cynicism is that it's not true. Or nice either, but that doesn't matter as much as that it's not true. <laughs> Uh, Satan is the arch cynic in the book of Job or in the whole Bible Satan is the old but you can really see it classic cynicism in the first chapter of the book of Job Satan God says about Job he's a righteous man and Satan the cynic says no he's not I can see through him he's not a cynic I mean he's not a righteous man he is an opportunist he's just jumped through the hoops because you've given him a very good deal he would have been a fool not to Pretend that he obeys you and loves you because you've given him this cushy deal. He's a very, very rich man. He's got a big family. He's got lots of social respect. What more could a guy want? And you've lined his pockets. You've given him all these benefits. Of course he pretends to love you. But you touch these things and then you'll see re- the real Job will stand up. The real Job will come out. That's, the, that's just totally the description I've given of, what, of the dynamic of cynicism. Seeing, looking at something positive, seeing through, stripping it away, saying no. The real thing underneath is sheer greed, self-interest, or however you uh, spin it. But you read the book of Job, and the, the whole book of Job is really about who is right about Job. Is it God or Satan? The whole blasted thing, 42 chapters, or the next 41 chapters, uh, are an untangling of, of who is going to be right about this. And it's very clear that God is right. Because uh, at the end, in Job 42, uh, God says, Job, my servant. Job, who is my servant? My servant, Job. He repeats this phrase, Job is his servant, at least three times in Job in, in the very last chapters. Shown himself, despite all his doubts and his raging and his tantrums before God and all this, uh, God it, it respects him for who he is and he does not curse God. He does not turn against God and he does not demand to have a, a final answer to his, to his questions. Uh, and so uh, Satan was wrong, or uh, and again, uh, he was not, not not only just not nice, he was mistaken about Job. See, Satan is wrong, not just not nice. He had misunderstood Job. And the irony of this is a really powerful one to me. Um, 
since it takes near omniscience to, to warrant cynicism, the, the fascinating thing to me that God, who really is omniscient, is not a cynic. Now that's a really powerful thing for us as we, those of us who are Christians here, to know and to have in our bones that God, who is omniscient, is not a cynic. The love he has for you is loving you as you are, not you in some idealized form. He can see through you as you, far better than you can see through glass. And his love for you is for that that he sees better than you know yourself by who knows how many times. Uh, and let me just run through the parable of the prodigal son with this in mind because it's sort of an interesting uh, sort of thought experiment or case study Uh, because I think in in that parable you see the father as God the uh, the God figure and uh, what you see is is an amazing illustration of the non-cynicism of God uh, represented by the father in the parable think of what a cynical father would have said to these two boys uh, set up for cynicism, let me remind you, this, this story, just a total setup for cynicism. Uh, the younger brother comes home, broke, starving, having blown half the family fortune and shamed the family name far and wide. Uh, a cynical father, who knows what the, he could have said, but he certainly could have said, you probably planned this from the beginning. You knew you could always lose your money and come back and you could always get another meal here. Uh, this is just what you planned, you're not repentant, you're just broke. Real fathers do that many, many times. Uh, many times. You may have even experienced it, some of you yourselves. We certainly, I, I haven't myself, because my father's a marvelous man, but, but uh, many of our students come and got that, and, and far worse. A totally cynical. You come back and you want a new start. You come back, you want to try again. You get sliced, cut off at the knees, and say, no, why should I trust you again? And you get cynicism, deconstructing any possible new, uh, new hope or new motivation. But, you know, <clears throat> what happened? This guy, this old Jewish patriarch, running down the driveway, long clothes running out behind him, running down the driveway, grabs him, hugs him, kisses him, brings him back, clears the ground to have a party. Get the musicians, kill a fatted calf, tell all the people to come. We've got to celebrate. <clears throat> That's a picture of the Christian hope. That's a picture of, of God in his non-cynicism. That's the picture of the God who sees all. It's not that he doesn't quite see enough to see as much as the cynic. He sees it all, and this is how he uh, receives us. Uh, The older brother. How does he receive the older brother? Well, a cynical father, again, could have said to the older brother, here you are whining about your little brother and his his party. It's only because you resent him, only because you never had the courage to go out and sort of see the world yourself. You were just uh, too stuck in the mud here at home and never had the courage to go and do what he did. It's just your sour grapes. A cynical father could have said that to the, to the older brother. Uh, it's not your just hallowed work ethic. It's, it's, uh, you're just, uh, you just resent him for having had a good time. Um, but again, think what the real father did in this parable. He goes out behind the barn or wherever the guy was grinding his teeth, spitting tacks or whatever, uh, and talks to him and says... Uh, the door is open to this banquet. This is a wonderful thing. Your brother was dead, now he's alive, he's gone, now he's come home. And we, this calls for celebration. This simply needs to be celebrated. And, and uh, uh, he reiterates this twice. And then, and then just leaves, the whole thing ends with the door, with him reassuring the bro- older brother that the door is open. And uh, 
I can't get going on this, but it's a really interesting thing that Jesus doesn't end the parable, leaves you with the, not knowing what the older brother did, which is intriguing, because that's uh, the people he's talking to. In the older brother, he's given the people who he's talking to a narrative mirror of themselves. And so he just leaves this to them and sends them off uh, with the parable not ended. But, but this is powerful picture you see of, of, of who God is, the God who does see all. Uh, the story is a setup for cynicism, you see. But while it takes omniscience to justify and to warrant cynicism, God who is omniscient is not a cynic. Not because he sees less than cynical people see. Not because he can't see quite as well as Nietzsche could. Uh, as if he's blind somehow to human corruption or something like this. Uh, but he sees far better than any of us do. Uh, but because his redemption is designed for screwed up, messed up, bent up people. And that's exactly what he's prepared for. That's exactly what he sent Jesus for, is to step into our screwed up, bent up world with a solution, with a solution that's made for us, not for some angels, but for us. Uh, Bent and corrupt people like us, and he is not finished with us. The whole gospel is a plan of his plan of rescue. So, as with the older brother, cynicism can effectively blind us to much that's good or potentially good in the world. I want to misquote Nietzsche here, but first I'll give him, I'll quote him properly, and then misquote him to tell something that to me is, I, I believe it more. Uh, it's, it's more true. This is straight Nietzsche, okay? <clears throat> when, a, when it is trodden on, a worm will curl up. That is prudent. It thereby reduces the chance of being trodden on again. In the language of morals, humility. Now, this is Nietzsche's warped view of humility just to protect yourself because you're a sheep and chicken and so on so you, you duck down and make yourself small and you're less likely to get stepped on by the world's heavy boots uh, I'm going to misquote this guy this is not Nietzsche this is me misquoting Nietzsche okay when it is trodden on a worm will curl up that is prudent it thereby reduces the chance of being trodden on again in the language of survival cynicism you know and what I'm saying is that cynicism is a self-protective measure that does protect you in a certain way, but that shrinks you away from what is best and most beautiful in the world. Uh, it's it's uh, in, a, in a, a curling up of the soul in self-protection here, away from the danger of disappointment and pain, but also uh, the, uh, of, of challenge, but also from what is most bright and good in life as well. And so I haven't been dwelling at all on the consequences, the practical consequences of being cynical. That would be another whole deal. But, but uh, I would just point out that this is it, is, is tremendous isolation and shutting yourself away from what is really best in the world. Okay, uh, just to look at how do we... I'm still on the Christian section of how to... <clears throat> make sense of it. Here I want to talk about, okay, how do we keep suspicion, but suspicion in check? How do we maintain the the kind of spirit of suspicion that we need for survival in the world without becoming cynical? And uh, in this world filled with spin and con artists and everything else, uh, again, wise as serpents, innocent as doves is the, is the overall rubric here. Uh, 
We need suspicion, but total suspicion of cynicism cuts you off from what's good and hopeful in life. Uh, Jesus gives us what I would call preemptive suspicions. In other words, suspicions to start with as you step into life. Um, suspicion beforehand uh, that, is, that, that limits your suspicion <laughs> and, and that, hold, that holds you in check. Um, again, Jesus never told us it would be easy, but he said that, that, uh, that we, are, we live as sheep among wolves, we, we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Uh, and, and that never was meant to be easy. The question is, okay, how do we limit suspicion? Now, I'll mention three ways <clears throat> or three things to think about. And boy, this is not, I'm not giving you a one, two, three, here it is, now you've got it. These are hugely challenging. They're deeply uh, demanding for us uh, in, in drawing, in needing, a lifetime project is what I'm trying to say. I'm not giving you neat little tidy fix-its. Uh, so the three, the three things are, are humility, individuality, and charity. <clears throat> First, humility. We need humility to realize the limitations of what we can actually know. I'm hugely limited in space and in time and mental capacity. Um, none of us know what's going on the other side of the wall out there. None of you is going on. There may be someone hot-wiring your car out there in the parking lot. You don't know it because you can't see it. You're in here. Your car is out there. Uh, you don't even know what's going on in the head of the person sitting next to you. They may be thinking about who knows what. Uh, you don't even necessarily know that much about what's going on in your own head. No? <laughs> <laughs> because you end up surprising yourself so much about what, you know, uh, things come out from you or, 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 or just appear to you that you never expected to... Now, so I'm saying we are just as creatures profoundly limited in our knowledge, uh, epistemologically limited. We also have another problem, which is that we're sinners and, and our selfishness gets in the way of what we know, what we think we know. Uh, it gets away in the clarity of our insight. I, I, I must be careful to not assume I have sort of 20-20 x-ray vision as I see through other people and unmask other people. Uh, both my finitude and my sin dramatically limit what I can know. I'll give you a, a bad biblical example not to follow. And, uh, but it's a very powerful one that has been, been helpful to me. When David was a teenager, keeping his father's sheep in the wilderness, he ran errands for his dad and taking food to his grown-up older brothers who were at war with the Philistines in the army. Uh, he came to bring food to his brothers one day, just as Goliath, the giant Philistine, was mouthing off against the God of Israel uh, and their nation and God. And David started to ask questions. Who is this guy? What's going on here? And, and uh, his oldest brother, Eliab, turned on him and was furious at him. And this is a verse that may not, you might not remember because it doesn't stick out at you that much. But Eliab says to David, all David was just, hey, what's going on here? Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down just to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? It was only a question. <laughs> you know? and, and so this is a, a very interesting, typical put-down of the adult generation to a teenager. What are you doing here? Incompetent little punk? You know, this is a grown-ups hangout. Are you here just to sort of see some blood and then go back to tell your friends in high school that you saw some blood? Or, you know, you can just see, you're here as a voyeur, you know. And, and, and he just totally cynically deconstructs David in front of everybody. And David says, whoa, 
back off. It's only a question. Um, I think this is actually a, quite a, a typical adult put-down of youth. Uh, and I think maybe some of us have experienced something like this. Eliab could see through David that he was just a voyeur. It was just teenage curiosity, and it was, his presence was an insult to real men who were in battle. But, as we know, that wasn't really the whole story. That day, David went to kill Goliath and become an international military hero uh, recognized by the whole country in the adult world, not just a high school football star. He was a... He was a in the adult world, he, was, he hit the top of heroism. Uh... We don't actually hear much more about Eliab. Um, doesn't appear much more in the story. A good chunk of the rest of the Old Testament is about David. Uh, but the, the thing I want to draw attention to is, what did Eliab really know about his little brother? How well did he know his little brother? Uh, Eliab was deeply cynical, but from a very pretty profound ignorance. Uh, he didn't know enough to be cynical. Uh, Preemptive suspicion is suspicious about our own ignorance and produce, ought to produce humility. Again, much of uh, the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is, is uh, teaching us to beware of our own arrogance, our own lack of humility, and, and is to be self-suspicious. So is, is teaching us humility. <clears throat> Individuality. That's the second way of reining in uh, suspicion. <clears throat> I need to see people one at a time, not stereotype people, not totalizing all work, all toil from all people, this kind of thing. Uh, uh, That's the root of prejudice of all sorts, is to generalize from someone you know to their race or their class or their gender or their whatever it is. Uh, They're all like this. Women are like this or black people are like that or whatever. It's all uh, uh, speaking wildly beyond what anybody knows. Wildly beyond what anybody has actual warrant to say. Uh, We need to stick to individuals. Jesus instructed his disciples to be suspicious, beware of the scribes and Pharisees, their false piety, hypocrisy, self-marketing, and so on. Uh, But then the the next minute, um, claim them to notice this poor widow who poor widow who puts money into the temple treasury. It wasn't just everybody is, is uh, uh, a hypocrite. No. Watch these people. Watch after them. Beware of them. But look at her. Look at her, uh, the, the, the heroism of her uh, generosity, giving from her poverty, uh, giving more than anybody else to the temple treasury that day. So uh, he, was, he was not generalizing from a few uh, to, to cover everybody. Um, The third would be here, charity. Suspicion must be done with charity. Seeing through and unmasking someone, busting someone in their hypocrisy, say, is something we should do with reluctance, not with enthusiasm. It shouldn't make your day to bust somebody as a hypocrite. and uh, that's, that's a real danger. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, again, one of the wisest things about cynicism. <clears throat> uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Now, this is a really interesting uh, way of framing it because um, love believes all things and hopes all things. That means it's willing to risk, it's willing to see someone and in a sense see through someone to their potential for growth. You see through someone not to deconstruct them to their worst motivations and and bring them down to the worst motivation they've ever had, but you look through them, you look into them to know and understand their potential for for Christ-likeness, for godliness, for growth, for courage, for whatever. Uh, so believe and hope. We're meant to believe and hope in other people. Uh, very risky business. But on either side of those believe, words believe and hope were two other words, bear and endure. In the same sentence, so making a sandwich out of believe and hope are bear and endure. That means those are words preparing for disappointment. Preparing you for disappointment. Meaning you're not just a sentimentalist or a utopian or assuming that everything's going to be wonderful. Uh, But you know that some people will let you down in places you trust them and places you have hope in them. But fair enough. It doesn't ask you to be a fool, but asks you to take risks and take risks in that direction and do it in preparation uh, or in, in, uh, in awareness that sometimes... That's not going to work out. And it's not the end of the world when someone lets you down. It's not the end of the world when you hope in someone for something and they don't come through uh, with that hope. So you have in in that verse a wonderful two-sidedness, but a real tension to believe all things and hope all things, but to bear all things and endure all things. And it's love that requires all four. Uh, And and an amazing, uh, amazing picture there. So it, 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 it calls us to risk disappointment. Um, and then one other point from that chapter it ends in of course as you know faith, hope and love abide and the grace of these is love one of the messages of cynicism <clears throat> is that uh, you may not believe me now as a cynic but give, me, give it time and you'll see that I'm right time always shows the cynic to be right is the claim of the cynic just give someone enough time and the truth will come out the real the, the real sleaze in someone's character or the real rottenness of corruption in in an organization will come out in time. That's totally false from what Paul is saying. Because faith, hope, and love will abide. Cynicism will not. Faith, hope, and love will abide in very good shape, thank you, uh, in their integrity uh, forever. And that means really abide, abide. Faith, hope, and love are there forever. I'll give you a very quick case study here and then conclude. Uh, if you've got Bibles on you, don't go find them, but it's a really interesting study. Uh, it's, it's very short, but it's fascinating to me. It's in John 12, the beginning of John 12. Uh, Mary took a pound of costly perfume of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for the 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Okay, let me just mention a couple of things on this because it's a really interesting thing from what I've been uh, uh, trying to say. Mary does this extraordinary thing. It it needs some sort of an explanation. Okay, it's just a wild uh, thing that she's done, an extravagant act. 
Uh, and how do we understand it? Everyone's, always, everyone's watching and wondering what in the world is happening here. Judas stands right up there with a way of explaining it. He can explain it. He can tell you exactly what happened, which is that she is a flake. She doesn't care for the poor. She's irresponsible. She just blew all this money, and she's a flake. So Judas is there, right and ready, with a very cynical explanation for what Mary has done. And she can be reduced to her uh, <clears throat> status as a flake, as an irresponsible person lacking compassion. John, the narrator, sees through Judas, okay, and says, Judas, as the cynic, cynics aren't used to being seen through, by the way, because uh, that's their activity. They have a corner on that, on, on seeing through others. John sees through Judas and says, he doesn't care a bit for the poor. He's just, he's just lost a windfall. He would have ripped this money off if we've given it to them. So John, with, I would maintain legitimate suspicion, unmasks Judas's cynicism and, and shows it for what it is. Jesus finally weighs in at the end. Here again, Jesus speaking as someone who can see through, through her. And, and he does see through her and says... There's nothing to unmask. This is true. She's done a true thing to me, and you should just take it as face value. Uh, you can't unmask her, because she's not wearing a mask. You should just take what she's done at face value. So I, I mention that because you see a lot of things going on all at once. You see an extraordinary act. You see the fast, cynical deconstruction of that act. But then you see John as a disciple who's lived with Judas for three years, and, and I would say as an inspired writer, narrator here, deconstructs Judas, deconstructs his cynicism, truly, and shows it for what it is. Uh, and then Jesus says, I can see through Mary, but there's nothing to unmask. She is straight all the way through, and she is sincere in what she did. And that that lays out the different perspectives, you see, that we've got. Uh, we, we, you can have a cynic who... Who, who deconstructs what can't be deconstructed and gets it wrong. But then you, there are times when we have to, as Christians really deconstruct others. We need to uh, be able to look through and have suspicion of other people's motivations. If we're honest, sometimes we need to be forced to do that. Despite being loving, despite being humble, the truth drives us to sometimes have to be suspicious of other people's motivations. But then Jesus coming in at the end and saying, but some people you can't do that to. You You can be suspicious, but you'll be wrong. And, and you, you, you need to just respect other people's uh, actions at face value. So uh, that, that to me is a fascinating sort of uh, putting together of all these different, uh, d- these different kinds of responses <clears throat> that we can have. So, uh, sheep among wolves, if we're wise as serpents and innocent as doves, we will be able to unmask people sometimes and then sometimes not. But we will practice humility, individuality, and charity and be guided by uh, humility individually, individuality, and charity. So, just concluding here, I've tried to show that we live in a cynical society with many cynical voices and forces on us from all sorts of angles. It's in the air we breathe. Um, Flannery O'Connor calls it a gas in the world, in the air we breathe. But that cynicism offers basically a false promise of sophistication, a false hope of self-protection, and a false ideal of honesty. Cynicism isn't wrong because it's not nice, it's wrong because it's not true. And in all theaters, and I'll just 
summarize that in each of the three theaters. Cynicism gives you a false confidence to be able to see through and unmask individual people. Uh, just think of times when you yourself have been cynically unmasked when, you, when that was really untrue. Uh, accused of a, of a sleazy motivation when that wasn't your motivation. And that's one of the most painful things to have happen to you, actually, as, as I think many of us could attest. Uh, someone, you try to do something right, and someone sees it as, a, as an expression of some really sleazy motivation. And uh, they're not right. And we need to learn from that to help us on the other side. Um, cynicism also gives us a false sense of hopelessness about our institutions. <clears throat> Marriages have actually, after all, sometimes actually improved. Marriages have sometimes been bad and actually gotten better. Not all marriages have just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and been death-dealing institutions. Um, Some churches have even been bad and gotten better. So the church isn't so internally corrupt and hopeless that it can't self-correct with the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Schools, corporations, even nations have actually improved Amazing. Uh, some have said that, the be- that, that, that history is the best argument against cynicism. Uh, in some ways, that's right. If we were all sitting here, if you can imagine back, you were, most of you are pretty young, if, if existing, I, can't, I don't know how old you all are, but imagine you were existing in the, in the, back in the, in the late 1980s, the Cold War era, late, let's say 1988, but you at least know something about what Cold War politics was going on at that time. And what if someone, if say, say were we then, say we are in, in, in 1988 now, and someone, one of you were to stand up and say, within two or three years, I believe that the, uh, the Iron Curtain will come down without a war, and South Africa will be ruled by a black man without a bloodbath, by a peaceful transition of power. Someone in 1988 saying, the Iron Curtain's going to fall, South Africa is going to be ruled by a black man, all in three years' time. Right. <laughs> right. You know, I would say, please, sentimentality, here we come, you know, or, or utopianism, here we come. Uh, you know, it's, it would be utopianism. Uh, uh, and yet, what happened? You know, Eastern Europe certainly not out of the woods, nor is South Africa out of the woods. But uh, it all happened. It all happened. And, and, and in part, not at all exclusively, but in part, due to Christians who had not given in to cynicism in those places, who had not given up against unbelievably difficult things to hope for. You look at it, in both Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, South Africa, the hopes people had to build on, particularly the Christians, I'm thinking of a lot of Christians that I know in those different places, were mighty slim, unbelievably slim, seemingly unrealistic hopes, but they didn't let them go, and they kept going and kept going, slowly, 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 year after year, and suddenly something really important happens. So uh, you look at the, the role of someone like Solzhenitsyn or the role of Martin Luther King Jr. in, in our civil rights movement and just someone uh, who doesn't give up, who's got everything stacked against him, everything, everything stacked against him. Christian people not giving up. Nelson Mandela was very, probably a Christian too. Not giving up, uh, but, but keeping hope alive. And, and uh, so... What does the cynic know about trashing in, in, in cynically trashing institutions? Is what I'm trying to say. The cynic knows mighty little about the future of institutions, uh, for, for sure. 
sometimes the cynic will be right because sometimes things do come unraveled. But but uh, uh, it, it, it's something we can't get in it by by the cynical route of just a, a blanket uh, suspicion. And finally, in, in a way, perhaps most important of all, that um, the message of the Bible is that we don't live in a God-forsaken world. We live in a broken world, in a bent world, and a world that is pitted against God, but it's a world in which God has forsaken His Son, that the rest of the world don't have to be forsaken. Uh, and His Son who willingly died for us, that we not need to be forsaken. And again, to remind you, the, the father figure in the prodigal son parable is God. It is the God who we pray to. It's the God we worship on Sunday mornings. He is the one... It's those attitudes to both brothers, to the younger brother and to the older brother, that we can look to in the face of God himself, in the face of the God who's our creator and our maker and redeemer and friend. Uh, So while the cynic will sometimes be right about specific people or issues, no one knows enough to justify the cynical totalizing judgment or adopt cynicism as an attitude to every area of life. Uh, God who does know enough, God who does have the epistemological equipment to be a cynic if he, if he uh, saw fit to be, uh, is not a cynic. And thank God that he's not a cynic to us as we come to him uh, in faith. As we, we, don't, we come not needing to expect a cynical interrogation uh, but to expect a banquet as laid out for, for the prodigal. So just as cynicism challenges the Christian faith from within and from without, in other words, attacks on us and also becoming uh, the danger of being cynical ourselves, I'd want to respond that faith in Christ enables us to do two things, to recognize the brokenness and the corruption and the ruin in the world that the cynic does see, to recognize it, but without losing the hope that the cynic has lost. In other words, to see what's wrong, but without losing hope. But also that faith in Christ enables you to recognize the glory in the world that the cynic can see without the sentimentality that the cynic rejects or fears. So there's a way in which we can really see the truth and see the truth unclouded by either of these two uh, very powerful forces around us. So again, uh, Christian faith, a terrible diagnosis, but a magnificent hope. I'll end there and over to you all again.